Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Patrick Shunny, a timber framer from Kearneysville, West Virginia. In this interview, we talk about his background and how he came to timber framing, how this type of building differs from a modern stick-built home, how to get started, a review of the basic tools needed to begin, and the role that engineers and architects play in the design and approval of these buildings. We wrap up with some resources for you to learn more about this type of construction and his final thoughts on the aesthetics and craft that go with the skills in building in this way. If after listening to this interview you have any questions, please feel free to contact me. Call 717-827-6266 or email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Now then, on to Patrick Shoney. Then, Patrick, if you can give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to timber framing, and we can take the conversation from there. Sure. I was fortunate to have grown up sort of in the woods, surrounded by the woods, uh, about 40 miles west of here in Berkeley Springs. And when I was in high school, my father designed and the family helped build the house that my mother still lives in which is a passive solar home that had some timber elements in it with um, structural insulated panels on the roof. And as I was finishing high school and, and sort of directing my studies, I was very interested in architecture and ultimately studied architecture in school, started at the University of Miami and then, and then went to the University of Maryland, uh, worked for a an architectural firm in Alexandria while I attended school at Maryland in the evenings. And and while I was at the, the architectural firm, met a lot of great people and learned a lot of great things, uh, one of which was that I probably wasn't meant to to work in an office setting. So through some of my extracurricular activities, both in school and work, I realized that I had a penchant for working with my hands and having done some carpentry, you know, in my, my parents' house and uh, through summer jobs, came to love carpentry. So when I ended up back in West Virginia, finishing up my, my fine art studies, I came across a group uh, in Shepherdstown that was building a timber frame and obviously asking for volunteer help. And so I, I had... Uh, mutual friends, and met Al Thomas, who was the local timber framer, and Roger Nair, who was his business partner at the time. And they were uh, they were raising a, a small timber frame in Shepherdstown, and I helped and became basically infatuated with the craft and the aesthetics and the sort of the holistic approach of being able to grow the materials that you use to to make your buildings. So that was 1994. And I have continued in the the trades since then, not um, full-time in timber framing, but full-time in building and timber framing as 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 much as I can during that time. Is that because of a lack of demand for timber framing? It's partially a lack of demand locally, Although I, I do have to say I had the opportunity to, to be a full-time timber framer as an itinerant. But at the time that I 
had some of those opportunities after working with Roger and Al on a, on a big project right around the turn of the, well, the millennium, actually. I had sort of married and, and was, we were pregnant with our son, and so it was a, it was a difficult decision for, for me to make to make it a full-time choice because there's obviously a lot of travel and I wasn't, I wasn't willing to make that commitment. So I have been very fortunate to be involved with a group of timber framers in Lexington, Virginia, and as many projects as I'm able to help with to stay involved in, in timber framing and the Timber Framers Guild. Could you describe for us what timber framing is and how that differs from like modern stick-built construction? Sure. The primary difference is that timber framing is a standalone structural system so that generally uh, stick building relies on an exterior sheathing to keep everything braced and rigid. Timber frames rely on bracing and, you know, their own posts and beams that are, that are all structurally integrated that can stand alone. So for example, in the, the workshop we're, we're promoting for August, there's a, an open air pavilion and it would be very difficult to build something like that with the uh, conventional two by fours because there would be minimal bracing and, and it would take a lot of either fastening or, or other materials to make it structurally sound. So, so timber framing, you know, is standalone structurally and obviously it's for most people aesthetically a lot more rewarding. You have those large beams and posts that are then pinned together and you have the different wood joinery that's visible in many cases that people can see that provides that visual aesthetic. It does. And, and I think it also uh, emotionally sort of harkens back to a simpler time. Um, for me, I know that when I, when I see a, a timber frame structure, it seems to slow me down mentally to, to a time when things weren't quite so chaotic as they are in, in modern times. And you were able to sort of get everything you needed from the, from the land you were living on. And I think you know, it should be noted that there's a feeling involved with these structures that's, that's hard to get from a, a conventional modern framing. I mean, it's the, it, it seems so much more sturdy and the longevity and the craft that's involved, I think speaks to something within people that, uh, that a, a modern building can't. In many cases, from what I've seen of timber framing, it's a lot of the hand work that goes into it and watching someone hew from a tree to a beam with broad axes and still seeing those labor marks on it as opposed to something that's been cut from a mill. When you're doing your timber framing in your workshops, are you going from tree to structure or are you having beams delivered in? Well, as with most things in the United States now, there are almost infinite choices. So we, on the project we're currently building, we got a taste of both. So in Shepherdstown, there was a historic structure, a log structure that had burned a couple of years ago. And we had hoped to restore it using the existing logs that were hand-hewn and dating back 
300 years. But after consulting with a couple of engineers, uh, it looked like we weren't going to be able to. So we luckily were able to salvage most of those logs and build a loft system using those hand-hewn logs. Now, we did not hew them, but we were able to salvage them and, and most of the existing joists and posts still have the hewing marks on them and it's it's a gorgeous structure. But then on the roof structure, which was a, a critical structural load, we had new beams milled that were chicken actually from Ohio and planed on four sides so that they could be graded and we were sure that the sizes were were all what we needed for the for the engineer's specifications. So we have a an interesting um and a diverse look in that great room area where we have, you know, a combination of 300-year-old timbers that were that were hand-hewn and had some burn marks on them. And we did have to resaw some of that material for bracing. So we have a, a minimally sawn look. But then when we move to the roof structure, we have completely milled and four-sided plain timbers that make up the roof trusses. When selecting woods for your structure, what trees are you normally looking for? What species are normally used in timber framing? Well, for most of the structural members, posts and beams, uh, you're looking for a, a very good strength to weight ratio. And obviously strength is, is very important. So especially in our area, uh, white oak and red oak are very popular because they are immensely strong. On the West Coast, for example, Douglas fir is very popular because it's it's lighter, but still has the strength and, and a beautiful color. But in the, in the Northeast, Eastern white pine is used quite a lot, and then Southern yellow pine is a popular species as well. Have you worked with anything strange or exotic? Um, we have worked with some Osage orange, which has a, a beautiful yellowish orange color, and it's very strong and fairly difficult to work, but... Uh, Cherries and walnuts are pretty popular for sort of accessory pieces. We use those for bracing a good bit. And I did last year attend a a workshop in Costa Rica and got to use some acacia and teak woods that were, that I probably became spoiled after getting to work with those that are so easy to work with. And, and, you know, a tropical wood is, is a joy to be able to work. When you're working those woods, what kind of tools are you using? Is it a lot of hand tools, or is it a mix of power and hand? Uh, it again is a it's a sort of a personal choice. I do I do know and have worked with people who prefer to use hand tools primarily. So for drilling holes, bracing bit is an option if you don't have electricity, for example. Hand saws for for cutting the, the shoulders on tenons and 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 we always use you know mallet and chisels for for cleaning our joints after they've been cut to a rough cut. So there's a good a good combination of tools and and like most things, once you become invested in in a an activity like timber framing, you can invest you know thousands or millions if you want to in in, uh, <laughs> in tools and equipment, but. You know, several timber framers say that basically all you need is a, a good mallet, chisel, hand saws, and, 
drills and you can you can build a timber frame structure. Do you ever mill on site? Yeah, so I have a friend uh, who has a, a wood miser that is mobile and we uh, we use it often. As a matter of fact, we'll have wood miser brought to the site to to mill some of the trees that we're able to sell on the property. I just recently had a maple drop, and one of the things that I'm interested in learning is splitting wood down and then hewing to dimensional lumber. And I'm just wondering, do you do you have any experience with anything like that? And how does that differ from on-site milling? I do have experience through workshops and rendezvous with hewing and hewing. And of course, the main difference is time. If you're willing to invest and if it's something you really want to learn, I think there are a lot of opportunities to do that. Most of my projects that I've, I've been involved with are through the Timber Framers Guild, which is an organization that was started in 1984 and, and is the organization to promote the art and science of timber framing. So that's a wonderful opportunity to find projects or classes or information. But my interest as from a, from a building standpoint was the beauty, the, the aesthetic, and also efficiency. So to be able to offer more of my clients these kind of structures. And I think there's a, there's a fine line to being able to do that efficiently. And so I, I do use power tools and I do, I do often use timbers that are milled offsite to be able to offer this, these structures in a, a more, I guess, a, a quicker fashion. And I imagine that those efficiencies in time then also save your customers on the cost of the building? They do, in fact, and, and, and probably realistically make the difference between me being able to build a timber frame or not. So if I had nothing but time and, and a little bit of money, then, um, then it's something that I could do on, with my own material on my own property. And so that's some of the people that we're trying to reach with information in workshops are, are people who, who have trees and who have time but may not necessarily have the, the money to hire a contractor to build it. So I think it's important to, to have that balance. So that provides a distinction between your commercial customers, which afford you the opportunity to do timber framing, in which you have to provide a certain cost and time frame in order to do so. And then the workshops fill the other side of that to help broaden the spectrum, because that's then where people who might not be able to hire you to build a building can certainly work with you in order to learn the skills to erect a building on their own. Exactly. And I think part of the revival of timber framing in the late 70s and early 80s was was a response to people who wanted to build their own homes and sort of a resurgence in in homesteading and an overall independence. And I think that's a large part of what timber framing and, and permaculture promotes is this independence and uh, self-reliance. I think it's, it's very attractive to a lot of people, myself included, that, that you could potentially you know, be able to live off your, your piece of property and make what you need. Well, it's, I interviewed the architect Bob Tice. He's a natural builder from California. And in part of our conversation, we were talking about how in the developed countries that your primary cost for a structure, about two-thirds of that is the labor 
of the skilled craftsmen involved, and only about a third is for your materials, whereas in the rest of the world, those numbers are reversed and you spend more for materials and less on labor. And within the permaculture community and elsewhere, many people who I've talked to is being kind of stuck in that divide where we don't quite have enough money for either. In many cases, when wanting to do something that's more ecological or use the resources that are available, so instead we turn to becoming skilled and learning how to do these things. And that was a a driving force in in my choice early in my career when I was either renting or finally bought a piece of property. It was important for me to to be able to do a lot of the work myself. And I I don't think I'm, I'm rare in that. And I think a lot of people, you know, even if, even if they're able maybe to, to hire professionals to do a job, people like to know exactly what's involved in, in, in the structure that they're you know, going to be living in or working in for, for years or generations to come. Because of the structural quality of timber framing, because of the larger spans that you can get compared to, say, a stick-built home, what are the costs for materials of building something like this compared to traditional building, or I should say modern traditional building? Well, I think that... In, in my experience, and, and you may have differing opinions, but in terms of having the structural bones, if you will, oftentimes the timber can be less expensive. But when you're dealing with a conventional stick-built frame, you most of the time the mechanical systems are are going to be sort of encased within that within that frame. So if you're doing a two by four or two by six wall, your wiring and your plumbing and your heating ducts and your insulation are going to be sort of within that frame. And timber framing is different in that it has to have either some kind of infill between your posts or an exterior skin that houses uh, a lot of that insulation or wiring, plumbing, and the like. So the structure itself, in my experience, can be less expensive, but... If it's a living space, you still have to consider the, the costs of sheathing and and making them mechanical connections. So. And that infill could be anything really from a clay straw slip to um, straw bale, round wood, or even a more traditional outer skin? That's right. So I've, I've been involved in projects that have all of those different materials that you spoke of. One of the more common in the commercial timber framing industry is is the structural panels that go on the outside of the frame so that the timbers remain visible, but the the envelope around the timber frame remains unbroken and provides for a more tight package. The insulation value tends to be better with those systems. However, if you're in a climate that doesn't necessarily rely on insulation, so in the more tropical climates, then, uh, then they, that may not be necessary. And, and doing a sort of an in, clay infill or even the cob can be just as viable. I've seen a lot of timber frame structures, but I've never really been up close and examined one. We're both here on the East Coast. And I was wondering, like, how large are the timbers that you normally use? Or does that vary based on the project? It does vary based on the project. Um, there are 
several common sizes, but in our jobs, most of our posts are seven by seven inches or eight by eight inches. And then the beams that that connect are what vary in size for the most part because they are determined by the span and the and the loads that are placed upon them. So there are a lot of if, if you have floor systems on above a beam, for example, you'll most often need you know a ten inch high timber or a twelve inch high timber. And of course some of that is determined by the species. Most of it is determined by the span and the load, but these can be massive timbers. And even for posts and braces, depending on the, the size of the structure, you know, a 10, a 12, a 16-inch timber is is not uncommon. And, and so then obviously becomes a logistical problem to sort of figure out how to put those timbers there, connect them, raise them safely, and simply transporting them is, uh, is another challenge that has to be solved. I was a wood turner for a while, and I think about the just the weight of some of the hardwoods, just a, you know, a cubic foot of something is 30 or 40 pounds. To have a beam that is 16 by 16 by you know, 20 or 30 feet long, how heavy that gets. Yeah, deadly heavy. <laughs> it can be, well, obviously. And you know, I, I was joking with my, with my wife just today that you know, I've, I've put on winter weight, but under the guise of you know, because we're working with timbers, it's important for me to have uh, extra ballast to help move move timbers around. So, unfortunately, once the timber frame is done, I'll have to uh, come up with another excuse or lose the weight. But it but it does uh, it does affect sort of how how you work. I have found, in all honesty, that when I'm doing a timber frame job, I get bigger. <laughs> it may be coincidence, but I don't think so. <laughs> Thinking about that and those large beams, when we were talking about some of the tools earlier, when you're cutting these beams with like a handsaw, are we talking like a 30 or 40 inch crosscut saw? Yeah, it can be. And a two-man saw, but most of the handsaw work that I'm doing is just to, to clean up uh, tenons and, and smaller joinery. So most of the time I'm, I'm using a, an actually a very inexpensive saw that, that's available at a local hardware store. So there are some tools that um, that can be very expensive and beautiful that may not get used very much. And so a lot of that is personal preference. But, yeah, I, I think it gets back to you don't necessarily have to have big or expensive tools to, to get the job done. Though sometimes it does make things more efficient. I think about having looked through my Veritas and my Woodcraft catalogs at some of the timber framing tools and how quickly some of those prices can go up, up, up. My dad lives in, in Rockland, Maine, and it's too close to the to the Lee Nielsen uh, woodworking tool factory that uh, I actually have to have him take me another way if we're if we're in the area. <laughs> it becomes dangerous. And though I have an interest in hand tools because that's just uh, I grew up in my father's wood shop, and he only broke out the table saw and other things when he was really working on a large project. Otherwise, we'd work with a lot of hand tools. If you're going to be cutting timbers to length or something like that, are you normally using just a chainsaw? We use a chainsaw if we're doing very rough cuts, but um, I have a, a Makita beam saw, 16 and 5 16 inch diameter blade that uh, we do most of our final cuts with if we're, if we're dealing with timbers, you know, 6 inches or 
or thereabouts. Makita makes a, quite a few timber frame tools that obviously are built for efficiency and still relatively affordable for a small company such as mine. There are some German and Swiss tool makers who, who make very beautiful and, and efficient tools that are a little beyond my, my budget. But again, it's, it sort of depends on your, your level of commitment to the craft and, and what is expected of you to determine what tools you need. But as you said earlier, someone just wants to get started. It doesn't require a great outlay on tools to begin. You just need, as you, what did you say, a saw, a drill, chisel, and a mallet? Yep. Those are the basic things that if you were interested in, in building a, a little shed in your backyard, you could build a frame with, with those simple tools. Another piece, there's um, a woodsman from the UK, Ben Law, who has written a number of books on working with grown materials. And he does, one of his books is on roundwood timber framing. Have you done any roundwood work? I have not done any uh, roundwood work. I do remember there being a spokesman from a, from a roundwood organization, a log organization in Canada, at one of the Timber Framers Guild conferences that I attended. And I, I remember him <laughs> pointedly wondering why we we're going up to all the trouble of squaring these perfectly good round logs off to use in a timber frame. <laughs> but I myself haven't, I've been involved with sort of log kits that were assembled, but I, I couldn't, I, I wouldn't necessarily think that those would be considered a, a, a round log building as probably a professional would deem it. Because all that's coming in relatively prepared and it's just more or less assembling from what they've provided? Yeah, sort of a, a Lincoln log on a grander scale is the impression I got. For example, when I think of round log building, there would be a good bit of scribing involved and, and there would be you know, obviously a great deal of craft in, in getting those to join tightly. And so the project that I was involved in didn't have any of that. It was, it was pre, pre-notched and yeah, delivered as a kit. A friend of mine's parents, uh, when I was in high school, built a log home, and that sounds very similar to what theirs was in that all the logs were already, they were more or less numbered. All they had to do was come in with a crane, drop everything into place, and then the crew went through and scribed where the doors and windows would be, did the rough cuts with chainsaws, and left. Yeah, that's yeah, remarkably similar to what I was looking at in it. You know, I'm sure there was craft involved at some point, and um, but it certainly didn't excite me as much as uh, as much as the timber frame did, where I was involved in the layout and joinery. And that speaks then some to Christopher's question about acceptable spans for roundwood timbers. That that would be a conversation to have with someone who is an engineer or specialist in that kind of building. That's right. I, I think that obviously in in any trade, there are specialists, and, and the more, I guess, professional or the more you become involved in a trade for money, the, the more you realize that engineers and architects and other design professionals do a very important job, and those jobs should be left to them. Okay. Do you rely a lot on engineers when you're doing your building to know what exactly it is that you have from your materials and what you can expect when you erect the frame? Yes. As a matter of fact, we often order materials based on an engineer's specifications. However, 
in the project we're currently working, where we had the existing 300-year-old hand-hewn logs, we obviously made an inventory of the logs as we were disassembling and had the engineer come take a look to make sure that the, I guess, the grading would measure up to her specifications. So it was a little unconventional in that oftentimes we'll rely on an engineer before we acquire timbers. In this case, we had timbers that we were we already had and uh, just needed to have verification that they were substantial enough to use for the for the loft structure. That they were still structurally sound for the building? Yeah, that they were the ones that we had chosen and hoped were structurally sound were in fact and met her approval. Luckily they did. When thinking about the owner builder looking at something like timber framing, have you encountered any zoning or legal issues when looking to erect a timber frame? Not in our area. Most of the the zoning planning commissions that I deal with are in most it's a small smaller community, so they know many of the engineers that are involved and there's a certain amount of trust that's built among the construction professionals and the design professionals. And so when inspectors or zoning officials see that certain engineers or architects have taken a look at the plans and, and said they're okay, we generally receive a lot of support uh, based on that. They obviously don't hesitate to ask questions if there are issues that they're not comfortable with. But for the most part, timber framing, because there are still a lot of barns and framed structures in our area, it's not frowned upon. It's sort of accepted as a viable you know, a building system that's probably going to last much longer than a, a conventional stick-built frame. So I would imagine that, uh, that uh, an inspector would be happy to see a, a timber frame versus some of the... Uh, what I would call lesser structures that are being built every day. And that also comes in because of how long timber frames being used. It's very well known with all the engineering tables and everything else. There are people you can call on to certify the work that you're doing. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there are, like I said, the, the design professionals that are involved in our area have a lot of experience and have been on you know, committees that, that have done studies on historic structures and recognize you know, if there are flaws in design or if there are areas that potentially may fail, they sort of address those and, and aren't hesitant to, to point those out and make notes about, you know, if, if you're going to use this kind of joint, make sure that it's reinforced with, you know, another member or in some cases, you know, we have to hide steel fasteners, which is, you know, obviously makes some of the timber framing purists cringe, but... Um, but if that's what it takes to to satisfy the engineers, then we have we have done that, of course. That was my next question as you were speaking to that, was whether or not you've had to use any metal brackets or tie-ins or anything to pull the structure together to meet code. We have, and, and again, probably less less code because I don't know. I'm not sure that code specifically addresses, but, but the engineers desire to, uh, to strengthen certain joints or certain areas where there are excessive loads, obviously. It becomes a, a big argument amongst timber framers, and it's, that's part of, the, part of the joy is having those discussions about, you know, if this 250-year-old barn 
stood for this long without having, you know, all thread hidden within, <laughs> then why should we think that uh, that the building we're putting together is going to need that? I think the only question that I have remaining at this point uh, before I ask you for your final thoughts is if someone wants to learn more about timber framing or to get started, what are some resources you would recommend that they look for? Well, obviously, there are plenty of resources online, but the most trustworthy resource I, I can recommend is the Timber Framers Guild. TFGuild.org online has... Um, it's it's solely timber framing. And it's, and it's the organization, international organization that promotes education and um, anything else you you may want to know. Some of the forums may be for members only, and obviously there's a membership fee, but they do have a lot of information for people who aren't members, and most of the projects and rendezvous that I've attended are open to non-members. There are obviously a number of books as well. One of the ones that I refer to most is Steve Chappell's The Timber Framers Workshop, which is very comprehensive and has a lot of not just work suggestions, but design, joinery, even have a few frame drawings in the back. And it's a wonderful book for, for all levels. And I'll make sure that there are links in the show notes to both the Guild and that book so people can find it. As we bring things to a close, what are your final thoughts on timber framing for the listeners? So my thoughts on, on timber framing basically come down to the beauty, the structure, and the craft that's involved. And my consistent amazement at the beauty and the craft that could, could go into these structures that have, that have stood for hundreds of years and were done by people with minimal tools and a lot of conviction and the hope that we can maintain you know, that beauty, that craft, and that conviction to keep building structures that are so beautiful and, and last so long. And it becomes a, a part of our worldwide community and keeping these kind of structures alive. Well, thank you for that, Patrick, and thank you for joining me today for this interview. Thank you for the opportunity, Scott. And that was Patrick Shoney. I became aware of his work when a listener, Emma, reached out to me to offer to host a roundtable discussion at her farm, the Riverside Project, outside of Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, later this year. As we traded messages, she said it would be best if we waited until after her timber framing workshop, which got me interested in talking to Patrick who is working with her on that project. If you would like to take the timber framing workshop and learn more about this craft from Patrick and other timber framers, you will find a link to more information and how to register in the show notes. There you'll see a video with Patrick and the site host, Emma, discussing the project. Finally, your assistance as a listener helps me to go record live events, like the roundtable at Emma's farm in September of this year, and to take photographer John along with me to document things like the timber-framed pavilion. If you are in a place to make a one-time or ongoing contribution, you can find out how at www.thepermaculturepodcast.com support. If there's any way I can be of service to you in the future, please get in touch. Call 717-827-6266 email show at the permaculture podcast.com or write the permaculture podcast 
P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. You can also join in the discussions at Facebook, facebook.com slash the Permaculture Podcast, or follow me on Twitter where I am at PermacultureCST. Until the next time, spend each day creating a world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.